today I will be having a chat with someone that you would know if you're familiar with the local blues scene here in Adelaide. I first saw today's guest when I recorded video footage at the Adelaide Roots and Blues Association's Memphis Blues Challenge competition in 2018, which was held at the Semaphore Workers Club. I then saw his band play a full set a few months later at another Adelaide Roots and Blues Association event, which was held at Club 5082, which is in Prospect. Uh, they were the opening band for the Chris Finnan band that night. The band I'm referring to is Holler and the Bones, and my guest is Mr Holler himself, Paul McLeod. Welcome, Paul. G'day. Welcome to the Banded About podcast, and thank you for agreeing to be interviewed today. My pleasure. Would you mind talking a little bit about yourself to begin with? So, where were you born and all the rest of it? Okay, well, um, I was born in New Haven, Connecticut. My parents are both Australian, but my father was studying paediatrics at Yale University Hospital. He'd done an internship at Yokohama Hospital when he, uh, in Japan when he left Australia. Yeah, my mother fell pregnant with me there. So the joke was I was um, made in Japan and born in America. <laughs> and um, and uh, when I was um, three months old, they dropped me on my head on the icy steps and I was the first baby admitted to uh, New Haven Hospital again on the... 1970, and, um, for the decade. <laughs> but, um, the rest of my story is really about diversity. Um, and my parents went on to adopt my siblings, and my siblings are really a large part of my personal story um, because uh, we're an unusual family. Um, and um, my, I have two African-American brothers, Dylan and Aaron. Dylan's also half Vietnamese, and Carolyn... We adopted on our way back from um, America and Korea. She's um, she was left in a basket in a park in Seoul in Korea, and then we went back to Australia. Adopted James, who's my Aboriginal brother. He's Barkindji mob. We found out years later, but we gave him a, um, a Luritja name, which is uh, Desert Mob, um, in the Papunya area where the Warumpi band comes from, and. Um, so it, the mob up in Central Australia called me Jagamara because of my brother's name. And um, anyway, then we went to... We were going to move to the Blue Mountains um, at the end of 1974 to Glenwood and I was enrolled in the school and I went to the school. We looked at the house and everything was going ahead. Then my parents decided they'd take us to the war. And um, so they packed us all up and put us on a plane and we went to Saigon at the end of the Vietnam War, which was... Um, Choice parenting. <laughs> <laughs> interesting, at I mean, least. Yeah, interesting decisions <laughs> that parents make. <laughs> Take our children, our young family, to the war. So, um, and but actually, um, I've got happy memories because they did protect us, and um, and it was an amazing culture and the skies, and we were sort of in this bubble. In, um, and I went to an American school there in Saigon at the age of five, and um, we we got. A, we, we were all craving Vegemite, but we ended up getting a two-kilogram jar sent over. <laughs> <laughs> Biggest jar of Vegemite you've ever seen. And then we grew up in um, Glebe and Annandale in the inner city. Also went out to um, Burke. My father was um, in the Aboriginal Medical Service and since the early 70s when, we, when he'd come back to Australia and working with Fred Hollows and the Aboriginal Medical Service. Um, well, he was at the first one in Redfern in Sydney, um, but it spread, the service spread all over Australia and um, 
for a time in 75 when we got back from the war, um, he, um, um, we, we rented a house out so we had nowhere to live. And we lived for a while in a church in Glebe, which was more like a magical fairy mansion. It was fantastic. It wasn't like church-like at all, but it had turrets and stained glass windows. And we had this wonderful Aboriginal potter, Than Coopy, out the back, who's very famous now. And um, she was like my black mama. She, we all used to sit, all my brothers and my sister and I used to sit on her knee and she'd tell us dreaming stories from Weeper Way. She's up in North Queensland mob. And... Um, and then we went out to Burke with the Aboriginal Medical Service um, out in Burke and I have these wonderful childhood memories of just being down by the dry river with lots of flies and playing, running around with Aboriginal kids out there, uh, I think Jambe, which is actually just north of where James's mob comes from because I recently did a pilgrimage from um, uh, the Gold Coast when I went and bought a... Um, a Toyota trip carrier up in Gold Coast. I came down on a bit of a pilgrimage because I went to Walgut, which was Dad's country, then through Brewarina, where I found the world's oldest man-made structure, which is the Aboriginal fish traps there, and then to Burke, where um, we used to live when I was five, and I found our old house, which was cool, and my old school when I was in Burke. Um, and then I went down the river, down the Darling River, um, to um, Wilcania, which is where my brother's mob's from, which is the northern end, and I've recently gone to Mungo, which is the southern end, and um, then up to Broken Hill and, uh, and back home again. But, um, yeah, no, so with the childhood, I've moved around a lots of different schools, um, and um, I sort of hit my straps when I was 12 years old. The world was perfect. I was successful in everything. I was in high school, I mean, the primary school ducks, and or the rightful ducks, and uh, school captain and house captain and, and I was achieving well and everything but sort of I was academically and everyone and, and the golden haired child my parents used to call me but I went a bit wild in my teenage years and as many do yes. as many do and um, my mother went off into politics and our house became the the um, the um, the headquarters for the New South Wales Democrats Australian Democrats and so we, we did lots of um, pamphlets and you know, electioneering for the Democrats through my teenage years. My mother was a Senate candidate and her big issues are around population control, which is the same reason why my family's adopted. Um, so, um, because, you know, to adopt children is a way to have a large family without uh, increasing the world's population. And, and the world's population is one of the biggest stresses on the world's resources and the impacts on climate change and all the rest. So, mm-hmm. I, I very much, um, whatever battles I've had with my parents, um, I'm as one with them in their politics. And my father has a real passion for working with Aboriginal people and worked with their Aboriginal medical service till he retired. And my mother still fights for... Um, she's really passionate about climate change now. Um, she's uh, and still runs the Sustainable Population Organisation. Mm-hmm. So... Um, they taught me to love the bush as well. Yep. So they took me out to the Blue Mountains a lot and um, and I, I fell in love with the birds and um, bird watching up in um, Katoomba and Lura. I was a singer from as early as I can remember and I, I remember learning all the words to American Pie when I was really young and uh, that was party tricks, standing up and singing every verse a cappella. Um, 
But I also, my mother also taught me um, piano. Yankee Doodle was the first song she taught me on the piano. Okay, and how old were you then? About five. About, about five? five. Mm-hmm. She taught me knitting at about the same time. But my piano went a lot further than my knitting did. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. So uh, your mother was your first musical influencer then? Well, um, no, I mean, my father is more active in music. He's been in choirs and been a singer, so we used to go and watch him perform in the Hallelujah Chorus in the, sorry, I should say Handel's Messiah at the um, Sydney Opera House, which was fantastic. Mm. Um, I, and when my parents, when I was, around the time I was born, my parents um, really got into African-American um, music and, and culture and um, they... Uh, had left books of James Baldwin on our bookshelves, which I came to read in my late teens. But they also uh, loved the black churches in the South and um, Baptist churches. And they left a book of spirituals. Um, or they'd picked up a book of spirituals while they were there and the sheet music. And so after, you know, as I learned to play the piano and I did a lot of classical music, but I also had this book of spirituals there and I used to love it. And things like, you know, Deep River and Swing Low, Sweet Chariot and songs like that and so I I um and I heard you know various recordings Paul Robeson and people like that um I came to love Nina Simone in later years too mm-hmm. I still love Nina Simone with a passion she's awesome um and um so you know I've, I come from a mix of diversity like or of values of, of uh, diversity and interestingly, like when people say you're multicultural in my family, I, I say, no, we're not. We're multiracial because my brothers and my sister and I are all from the same culture because we all grew up together. Yeah. Um, but, of course, we do have multicultural extensions and we've always been encouraged to, you know, celebrate our own culture. So I, I come from a very humanistic uh, environment, mm-hmm. um, one that celebrates people. My mother actually celebrated, um, sorry, studied uh, anthropology um, at uni for a while, and I've got quite an interest in anthropology and mythology too. And I'm, I'm um, really interested in um, Aboriginal culture and First mm-hmm. Nation culture, and and um, and because you know I love my brother. He passed away two years ago now, but. Um, with my dad, with our background, with my dad, and then my brother, my brother, and my Aboriginal brother and I were the closest in some ways because we were both musos. But James uh, was charming, and everyone adores him. So he probably made everyone feel like he was their their favourite. <laughs> yeah. So you were um, obviously a very good student um, during your primary and high school years. So what did you do study-wise after oh, that? No, I was a good student at primary school. I wasn't a good student at high school. Oh, not in high school. Yeah, okay. No, 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 no. But you did go on to do some further education. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Yeah. I And so I, I got into all sorts of mischief at, at my first high school, um, but made great friends who I'm still friends with today and bands, you know, at, um, at high school. And, um, and then um, my mother... Like lied to me, and she said that the school had asked me not to come back for year eleven, and uh, that was not true. She was just saying that because she wanted to get me away from my friends. And um, anyway, so we went out school shopping, and first she tried to get me into some posh um, private school that my grandfather had connections with, and um, 
and uh, and she just looked at my face and knew it wasn't going to work when we were looking at this ultra strict environment. And then she just went to the other pole and took me to this like totally hippie alternative high school where they called teachers by their first names and they treated you like adults. And I was in heaven. I just thought this was fantastic. It was called the. It sounds like a great place. Australian. <laughs> it was awesome. It was called the Australian International Independent School in North Ryde. But since been knocked down, unfortunately. But it was a nice little uh, bit of utopia while we were there. And and there I wasn't. I was a slightly better student. And I was really, I've never stopped being interested in learning, and I'm now a teacher, obviously, but um, I never stopped being interested in learning. I always loved learning. I was just, I had trouble with the institution when I was at the strict place. And then the, this other school, Australian International Independent, really reignited my love of learning. Um, so I was loving everything. I was loving biology, I was loving art, I was loving history, I was loving English, you know, everything was great. But again, I wasn't that disciplined around it and and my social life and my other interests like drama, which they couldn't offer there. I was running the drama department as a student at the school and um, I produced the Cannibal Ghost by Oscar Wilde, which I transcribed from the um, short story into it. I turned it into a play and, um, and then directed it and starred in it. So, you know, like it was... Um, Drama was a real passion, and that was what I found. And then my first degree, I went into, and then I got into theatre in the pan, which is. And my classmates were my classmates were the Umbilical Brothers and Cashel Moore, the author, and Steve Rogers, who's a very well known actor. And so we had a really um, uh, rich vein of talent in our year mm. at um, at uh, uni, and I was lucky to scrape by. I was the top singing student and the bottom movement student. <laughs> And I almost failed second year because mm. of my um, my difficulties dancing in time <laughs> at town. But scraped through and um, and was lucky enough to go to America, which was the last time I went to America, which where we were part of an international theatre training festival where we presented the um, Therese Radich's um, uh, Madame Mao, it's called, which is the history of Mao Zedong's wife, Zhang mm-hmm. um, Chin. And um, and Jung Chin um, was uh, one of the gang of four, and she was vilified, um, and she was a hard woman, and she was difficult. But I think uh, she got blamed for a lot of um, Mao's dismi- misdemeanors as well. So um, I don't think it was all necessarily her um, some of the blame. But she, yeah, it was an epic play, and we put this on, and we all arrived in Milwaukee with you know, haircuts shaven down to a one. And uh, all dyed black, and so the American hosts were quite um, mystified by this Australian contingent with short black hair. And um, but anyway, we had a fantastic time with the Swedish school, the Polish school, and the American school. And I was billeted with two fun students, so I had the best time and partied harder than all of my other classmates who were stuck with more conservative families. Oh, well, actually, while I was there, because I, I was, I didn't get any of the major roles, but then they put me in the music, and I was doing a lot of the keyboards for um, for that production. Um, and um, but the uh, the composer, our composer Peter Kennard, he um, he said, "Hey, Paul, uh, Clarence Gatemouth Brown's on." I'm like, "Who's that?" And he says, "Yeah, he's an old blues man. He's awesome." And so I said, "Yeah, all right, let's go." And it was. It was. It's still one of the real formative gigs in my musical life. Was that your first encounter with um, somebody of that calibre in the blues genre? Yeah. So I'd seen some Australian blues before, 
Um, and, you know, it's funny for where I am now, looking back, I wasn't really that into Australian blues um, before that. So what I learned from Clarence Gatemouth Brown is how, with a couple of simple lines, you can build up the tension um, in a piece um, before you play and and it created the most extraordinary amount of space. I think as bands, as musicians, we all struggle to create space at times. Um, but Clarence was at, you know, getting towards the end of his uh, career. This was in 1990 and um, he had so much confidence in himself. And when we played our tribute recently at the final of the Memphis Blues Challenge, um, that was the same word that people used about us, was having the confidence to do that. And I thought, oh, that's interesting, because that's what I felt about him when I saw him do it. Yeah, a lot of performers don't allow that to come through in a performance, which is a shame. Um, but you do it well, very just, well. <laughs> thank you, but it's a conscious effort. Mm, you know. it you is. need to make it a is. conscious effort. And, and you need to trust. I mean, people freak out about engagement. They think that you'll necessarily be more engaged if you're in your face wall of sound all the time. And that's just not my taste mm. anyway. Mm. You know, I actually really love Hendrix. And mm. um, I love um, his dynamism and um, the wildness of it. And really, I'm searching for something wild in some ways. But, you know, when you look at Clarence Gatemouth Brown... The wildness is very subtle, and and the variations are very subtle. Um, so I suppose I have um, a tension between those two things. But the thing that, like, say, Hendrix and Clarence Gatemouth have in common is dynamism. You know, like they have dynamic, and that's what I think gets lost in our overly compressed musical environment these days. Mm. And I really would love to create wild stuff. Again, I'd really... I know, there's a lot of work. Like, Hendrix's albums weren't accidents. There was no. a lot of work in them. I went down to Chicago Blue Strip as well on that same trip. Oh, OK. Yeah, and yeah. I just walked from bar to bar, mm. which is in the song, um, Feel the Grief. Yep. And I don't know who I saw, but they were all incredible. Tell us about your very first band. Well, I mean, my parents had some weird taste and... Uh, we went and, uh, you know, we saw things like Jesus Christ Superstar when I was a kid with um, John English and mm-hmm. Marsha Hines and I had a T-shirt of that when I was a kid. Um, we had a lot of, um, I came from the church, so, you know, I saw, I had a lot of music in me through the church. Um, we were Presbyterian come uniting and um, so, and I was jealous of, you know, more of the black cultures and, um, you know, uh, even the Catholics seemed more interesting than, than my own church, and so I became a paper boy as a way to avoid going to church in the end. But I always loved the, the singing bits, you know, so whenever I had to go to church, I, I, just, I was really hanging out for the, the singing. Um, but in terms of watching other performances, I, through the paper boy and then later the hardware shop, you know, I started earning enough money to take myself to concerts. And, and the greatest one of those in my teenage years was I got to see Queen with Freddie Mercury at the Sydney Entertainment Centre. Wow, that's yeah. a biggie. And mm. as a front man, you know, I'll be eternally grateful for that. 
experience because it's a concrete bunker. It's um, even bigger and uglier than the Adelaide and Tambor Centre. Mm. And, um, and yet his presence, you know, lit such a poor environment and turned it into something magic, you know. It would have been incredible. He's, he's an extraordinary, well, he was an extraordinary spirit, bright burning spirit on mm. stage. And there's craft there. And it's, and it's about bigness. Mm-hmm. And it's about the sharpness with Freddie Mercury. I also like Frank Sinatra. I didn't see him live, but I just when you think about the sharpness of Freddie Mercury's movements, there's a sharpness in um, Frank Sinatra's singing and his phrasing. And um, he talks about singing like a boxer, you know. Um, Freddie Mercury soared and Frank Sinatra kind of, um, he's like the Muhammad Ali of singers, you know, like he floats like a butterfly and stings like a bee, you know. I saw um, Don McLean, I I went, I I saw a lot of um, Balmain bands in the pub scene there, Cyclone Small. I was in a band called Wild Custard in many years. At, um, Wild Custard, okay, yeah, Wild so Custard. how did that band form? Well, we were just all like really good mates and we were all in the same sort of gang. I call it the hippie gang at school. And um, and that has, um, you might have seen the photo on my Facebook of it, um, had uh, Peter Oriel, who was living in Broken Hill till recently. Um, on drums, we had um, Danny Bray, who's now a Sydney architect. On uh, rhythm guitar, Michael Porter, who's still a lead guitarist up in um, Cairns now, um, doing and he's still he's doing a bit of blues there too. We had Jeremy Newton on sax. Um, can't remember who was playing bass. Who was playing bass? Can't remember. Maybe it was me on the keyboard because I had the I had keyboard. I did Juno One Hundred Six and uh, I was doing the lead vocals as well. And um, yeah. No, so we were all like really good mates and um, all the girls who we were friends with all came and did our hair and hung out on the side of the stage. You can see them in the, the background of that black and white photograph on our school stage, um, which one, was still one of the biggest gigs ever played because when you play for the whole school, it was a thousand people and uh, it was a good, good gig. Um, yeah, no, so, but we didn't have a name. So we went on stage and uh, the deputy principal announced us and said, and the next band is, and he called behind him, what's your name? And the drummer goes, oh, Wild Custard. And I went, <laughs> I went yep, yep, Wild That'll Custard. Do. Yeah. Yep. And it, apparently his dad or his uncle or something had, had come up with that name. So we just went with that, yeah. But um, no, that band was really good. That was a good band. And um, we didn't do much with it, but us, I, it was a lot of it was my own original songs then. So that was when okay. Was so you've been writing yeah, songs been writing, from then. Well, I've been writing since I was about twelve. Mm. But, um, yeah, walking in the park alone, bottle of rum down by myself. Excellent. So when did you make your way over to um, Adelaide? So uh, I had two terrible relationships in my twenties and. Um, Followed by a couple of nice ones, and um, and I, was, I moved up to the Blue Mountains and kept moving up further. I was a piano man in the from between uh, the ages of twenty five and thirty, up in uh, Katoomba and um, also in Mount Victoria, and um, or Blackheath. Sorry, it was Blackheath, and um, um, I, you know, I had just been through the ringer emotionally, and. Um, 
you know, you know, full respect to those women, but it was a tough time for me personally, and I think it was for them too. And um, and I, my life was kind of going around in circles a bit. I had, um, um, you know, a really creative period where I learned life drawing and um, had a great kind of scene, but it was almost like in the I Ching, you know, when everything's perfect, the only way is down. And, you know, you could see everything sort of slipping and falling apart. Mm. Now the time is ending, I wrote in a song around that. You can see it in the um, your friends and lovers. You can hear it in every time they say goodbye. But, um... And so I was ready. There was like, you know, I'd sort of reached this creative heights and I was ready to... I was kind of... And being up there on the mountain, it felt like to fly away, literally. It felt like to fly somewhere else. And, you know, because I came from Sydney, there was a certain anchors there with a the family and everything and family moving to Canberra and all that. But I was... Um, my um, Aboriginal brother, um, uncle, um, so James's uncle, who, uncle Dave, who was um, you know Barkindji as well, um, he'd been living with me, and um, and my friend Zephyr, who was one of our life models, called up saying, "Hey, um, do you want to?" Um, uh, oh, is Uncle Dave there? I said, "No, he's not." But what are you up to, Zephyr? And Zephyr goes. Um, Oh, I've just moved down to Central Australia, and I'm I'm, I'm going around uh, Aboriginal communities, and and I was seeing an Irish woman, all her at the time, and I was looking for a way to get to Ireland, and but I'd always wanted to go to Central Australia, and I always wanted to go to the Aboriginal communities mm. in the desert, and and um, and so I got this idea in my head that oh, I could go and do a bit of that work with Zephyr, and I could try and get some gigs in the casinos at Alice Springs, and I could earn some money to go to Ireland, right? Yeah. And, uh, so. <laughs> So the um, the work in the communities, even the gig at the casino came through. All of that came through. The relationship with the woman on from Ireland didn't didn't work out. But um, um, and so I never got to Ireland. But um, I I um, ended up um, learning Pitjantjara and and uh, living in Ernabella uh, in Pukacha, mm-hmm. and with the Anangu, beautiful, generous, nurturing people. Um, looking after me when one guy ripped me off and the animal fed me and came literally um, like Tubby who adopted me out there, Tubby Lang is his um, animal part Afghan. He um, he would give me money and he would send me to Alice Springs and say, you need a good time and all that. And then uh, another man, uh, Tom Miller, well that was his, his real name, Russell Miller, um, at uh, Annabella School, he gave me a good job, and so I taught animal kids music for three years, and I did holiday programs. I actually, did music programs. It was the first time I came to Annabella for the NPY Women's Council, which is the Annabella Pitjantjara Yankanjara Women's Council, and um, it was um, a really amazing time. I was, um, I felt really taken in and loved by the animal and um, I mean, you know, I was providing them with musical instruments and, and discos and holiday programs so you know I was doing lots of good things for them too but it was very much um, a relationship of mutual respect you know mm-hmm. and so they looked after me and uh, I looked after them it was um, it was good good time and I met Eddie there um, and, uh, and for those who don't know, Eddie's Eddie's, Eddie is. Eddie Drummer, yeah. 
and he was working in Annabella and at Eddie's house I met Anne who became the mother of my two children mm -hmm. and um, so to be with Anne some three years later I um, decided I'd go and study to be a teacher because I was sick of being treated as an SSO mm -hmm. um, at school and um, so I went back to do my second degree and Anne actually suggested to me that I might be interested in disability because I've been working with a young man with an intellectual disability who was animal and he, hilarious, he was so funny and we got on really well because he loved music so he followed me around, he was like my shadow yeah. and so I was actually working as his carer um, and went and studied uh, special education mm -hmm. at Flinders Uni in Adelaide and Anne supported me for the um, first couple of years, I had lots of part-time jobs um, working uh, the Aboriginal Family Support Services um, at, at the hostels there, the youth hostels, and um, also at the wheelchair program, which mm -hmm. so I kept working with animal kids and doing music with animal kids when I got back to Adelaide. So really it was, my work with animal kids really went over five years because there was the three on the lands and then the two with the wheelchair program, both at the school and the, the residence. And um, again, happy times. We did lots of fun, amazing things with those guys. Mm. Excellent. So, um... Tell us how Holler, Holler and the Bones became a band. <coughs> Pardon me. Well, yeah, so, I mean, with Eddie, the, that was the first connection. I, yeah. I should have said Eddie and I, while we were there, while, while I was there on the lands, he, um, um, we both played together in the Pukachu band, which is an animal band, and, and we were the two white fellas in the animal band. And uh, we did great gigs there together. And then we continued to jam and play variously over the last 20 years. Um, as um, Eddie's come back in and out from the different communities that he's worked on. Um, and um, about oh, seven or eight years ago, we um, put together a band called Ashman because um, uh, Andy had um, uh, found... Um, the, got us a gig at the big gig in Kadena. And, and Andy is? Andy, Andy Zora is our guitarist, the mm -hmm. lead guitarist. And I'll I'll get to him, but um, <laughs> but um, yeah, we um, so Eddie and Andy and Gilly and I and Gilly's one of Eddie's mates, um, our mate now, but um, he um, we put together that band for the big gig in um, in Kaduna and wrote some really good songs, some of which appear now on the Holler and the Bones album. Mm -hmm. And then I was invited by Mandy, um, who's mates with Dave Blight, um, to come down, when I was working up at Taparoo, um, to come down and see Dave play in the Memphis Blues Challenge. Um, this is in 05. And, um, and I went back to Eddie and Andy, um, and said, I want to do this. So you gathered all these um, musicians. Well, you want to go back to Andy. Let's go, go back? back to Andy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. All right. So um, after I got my degree at, as a teacher uh, for the Ed Speckett, I was absolutely blessed because my daughter had just been born. I landed a full-time permanent job, which is just about as good as you can ask. Yeah, absolutely. As a parent. Mm -hmm. uh, it was in Clare. Mm -hmm. um, and um, we, um, 
when we first went to, Anne and I first went to Farrah Flat, which was not necessarily a baby-friendly place. It was a, an 1870s stone cottage with wolf spiders and all, and a bat flying in the lounge room. Wonderful. Yeah, it was pretty crazy. Uh, so we, we didn't last long there. We, yeah. um, and we went to Clare and had a teacher housing, which Anne was much more happy in. And uh, a couple of years later, Tom was born there too. But um, I ran the school choir there for a while. Um, as part, you know, apart from the special class, I, I did the um, school choir, and uh, Andy saw me play, and he thought, "Oh, I want to play with him." And uh, I got on with Andy in a parent-teacher interview because I taught a couple of his kids, and um, and then um, um, the Beatles show came around, and um, Danny Hooper, who's a, a well-known uh, country music star in Clare. He couldn't do the gig um, that he normally did. Beautiful voice. He's got an angelic voice. It's gorgeous. Um, so they asked me. Um, and um, so I got to work with Andy Zora. And um, Paul Carpenter was... Um, Andy's a, a Les Paul player. And um, we also had another guitarist, Paul Carpenter, who's a Strat player. And uh, the two of them are exquisite in each in what they do. Well, there we are in a reasonably small country town and I've got the most awesome Les Paul player and Strat player it's pretty pretty good assets there in uh, Clare it's fantastic and um, I got my mate Rod who was the um, who had grown as a, he's a bass player and he'd always um, uh, well he, he he was inspired by Paul McCartney and always wanted to play Paul McCartney's music mm-hmm. and uh, but there was no bass player at spot available because there was another fellow who was organising the show um, playing the bass so but we had a spot for the drummer so Rod actually played drums with us there which was hilarious mm. all his life he wanted to be Paul McCartney and he got to be, had to be Ringo <laughs> and um, but anyway so um, uh, Rod and I were playing at the Tominga Hotel a lot then and um, and I um liked Andy's guitar playing and Rod liked Paul's guitar playing and um, and uh, we, we both thought we did need a guitarist to come and join us and uh, but I was the boss so I won and I got Andy I chose Andy mm-hmm. and then Andy and I realised in the end after various we had various band combinations which were all fun you know when you're a muser it's fun playing with any other muser absolutely um but we did a we did a couple of solo gigs and we realised and we knew we could hold it just with the two of us, um, and so that really became the thing. Mm-hmm. And um, where we um, Paul and Andy became a duo, and um, and we've had a, a really lovely time playing around the wineries and in in, um, in the Clare area and various gigs all over the state since then. And, mm-hmm. Other other things that we've been involved in with um, Eddie and Gilly uh, include the Mari Camel Cup, which uh, oh that was Danny Hoover again, mm-hmm. the um, country guy, rang me up and said, "Hey Paul, I can't do this gig this year, and they want someone to go do the Mari Camel Cup." And the first time I did it, I actually did it solo, mm-hmm. which was just um, a great experience. It was it was like going back to the lands again for the first time because it was freaky. I was going to drive myself and all my band gear up into the desert and perform a live solo gig at a camel cup and people have never known, place have never been. Mm. And um, it was fantastic. It mm. was fantastic. And uh, and then it came back as a duo and we had a band and then a duo again and then I took my car over on the Eden Data Track and 
Uh-huh. <laughs> Great. <laughs> and that became the old game. Yeah, yeah. So you've um, had some interesting adventures which have later gone on to become songs. Yeah. That you perform with, Holler and the Bones. So getting back to Holler and the Bones, so how did you get to the... The format, the, the final lineup that you have now. Okay, all right. So, well, Fred up at the pub in Clare, the Bentleys, uh, he was mates with this um, trombone player called Nick Vladkov, and Nick, um, he he talked about him like one of the most amazing performers ever. I loved Fred's stories because Fred is a very dry, you know, cynical, hard-bitten kind of country publican. Mm-hmm. But he talked about Nick with a sense of wonder and spark in his eye. I thought, my goodness, if uh, if this fellow can create this in Fred, he must be interesting. Mm. And I met him and um, he was everything Fred said he was. He was wild. He's amazing on trombone. He's probably one of the greatest performers I've ever worked with. Mm. And I asked him, I felt even cheeky asking because he's with all these big bands in Adelaide and, and has huge responsibilities um, if he would even think of um, playing blues with us and he's kind of like had gotten himself into you know a bit of a hermit like environment and sort of thought the idea of some company wouldn't might not be a bad idea and mm-hmm. a bit of fun and he really hit it off with Eddie actually Eddie was a real asset for getting Nick in the band so mm-hmm. um, yeah and those two are still mates and um, and so I wrote a lot of um, music around the trombone as well to try and keep him and try and make him relevant, and, you know, in mm. the, his presence. Because I suppose Eddie and Andy and I have more of a rock background yeah. than, than what um, Nick does. Um, but I also have—I didn't talk about my love of jazz, but you know, like I've been—I was part—I went around the jazz scene in Sydney in my um, late teens and early twenties, and um, I've always loved jazz and. Um, so I love what Nick does and jazz. And Nick was trying to con- like convert me to jazz, but I'm like, I'm already there, man. You know, like you don't have to convert me. And um, I just, it's not necessarily what I do, but you know, I love it. I was, it's not everything I do. It's a little bit of what I do. And um, yeah, so um, and Nick for everyone who saw the bones with Nick, um, it was an incredible. Uh, experience and and Eddie would always rave about our frontmanness. Of course, I think Eddie's highly watchable himself uh, and um, a delight, and, and uh, I love the way he plays. But um, and that's why he's my drummer. But um, he um, um, he loved our front line with me and Andy and Nick up there. He said it was like you know all superstars so, mm. you know, out on the front line. And then, and then losing Nick, because, you know, Nick guy won by it all. And, you know, it was, it was always a stretch in his life. And, and, um, and uh, yeah, it got too much because uh, he had new responsibilities at the beginning of last year. Um, and he had to leave. But, like, his music has shaped, like, um, our sound and the songs that we've written. And, you know, I'll always be grateful for that. And there is credit for him on the album that recognises... Um, you know he helped write some of those songs and some of the lines mm-hmm. like in for instance in um, What's Your Magic he did this amazing thing only a jazz player could do where he had this minor um, 12 bar going and um, 
he just picked out two notes. Bum, 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 bum. Those first two notes. Bum, 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 bum. And where they sit in the music um, just broke my heart mm. in a good way. Mm. Um, and it reminded me of Miles Davis. Yes, that's what I was going to say. That was yeah. very Miles Davis. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's what I thought it was, it was mm. Miles Davis. Yes, but it's not. It's like it's actually slight. It's not. He hasn't taken a direct. It has a, that kind of feel, mm. but mm. it's Nick Vladkov who's mm. made that line. And I, so I now play that in my. I echo that in my keyboard line, mm. my piano line. Okay, so he left. Um, and you didn't decide to replace him, obviously. Well, yeah, a friend uh, who played saxophone, there's a rare recording out there somewhere, I'm buried in my iPad somewhere, um, of a version of the, the early version of The Girl with the Lightning in Her Eyes with um, Nick's mate, who's a saxophone player mm-hmm. um, from down Victor Harbour Way. Right. And um, it's, you know, the. the the feeling of horns, because we've got a we've got a big sound, and um, horns are always there in the ether, whether we have the actual manifestation of a an actual horn on stage or not. Mm-hmm. Um, the horns are in our sound, yeah. Either you know just by inference or in actuality. What 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 I've been really interested in getting uh, is a dig player. Mm-hmm. And I was I was hitting up Jamie Goldsmith for years, but he's been really busy because he's been really successful with um, um, uh, Mickey Ross and um, Zachariah in uh, their um, oh, I forgot the name of their group, but um, Zachariah's a, 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 um, an animal man from um, from Mimili, and uh, they've got this um, beautiful um, duo that they do all over the place. And Jamie's been playing with them and travelling all over mm-hmm. Europe and everything, so. Yeah, Jamie's been kind of too busy. There's another guy who I just met recently. He's a Ghana man, which would be really cool um, to have someone from the local mob here. Um, so there could be with. another change to the lineup. I would for love. And I the would, bones in the future. Then. I would love mm. to have Dig. Mm. Dig would be fantastic. And the band knows this. Everyone knows that. I think like the Dig has this is the sound of Australia. It is. That's the flash. Yeah. And you're a very um, Aussie, very Aussie blues. Yeah, well, and I'd say when I was going back to the story we were telling before about how I'd seen Australian blues that I wasn't that impressed with, after I came back from America, um, I joined another band um, in Sydney called the, the Joking Gods. And Splat was our early name, which meant was short for Supposed People Laugh at This, and, um, and then, which then became the Joking Gods after our song God is Only Joking. And um, and Bart was a big old bluesman. He was another Les Paul player, actually. And um, Bart, um, he, uh, he called himself Black Bart on stage. He uh, he got me into Chain. Mm-hmm. And we used to play Grab a Snatch um, back then. And I, I liked that. Mm. I liked that. I liked Chain. And yeah. I had the absolute privilege to meet Matt Taylor recently. And, um, and I was... I got... Yeah, I got a very strong sense of um, connection between what he was trying to, what he did, mm. what his bands did, and what we're trying to do now. And I got a sense of history, I suppose. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's what I want to take to America now. Yep. Yeah. Cool. So, um, when did 
Because uh, we haven't talked about Alan, your bass player, yet. Yeah. So how did yeah. Alan join the Bones? Well, Alan is mates with um, Andy and um, in Clare, and he's part of our Clare contingent. Um, but he, of course, is a Broken Hill miner. That's his background. And his dad, Cowboy Curtis, um, he was... Um, yeah, quite a well-known character around uh, Broken Hill. And, um, yeah, so some people still call Alan Cowboy up there. We, we call him Goosebumps because when he, when he uh, likes a riff or something, oh, Goosebumps, and he'll show his arm. I've got Goosebumps. Um, so, yeah, he's either Alan Goosebumps Curtis or Cowboy Curtis, mm-hmm. whichever you like. Yeah, no, so that, that's, that's it. I mean, he, uh, he used to play with No Exit, with, um, uh, which was the Angels tribute show up mm-hmm. in Broken Hill so a real part of that Oz rock scene mm-hmm. in uh, Broken Hill but he also used to play like Night Train doing a lot of Oz rock covers there again so he's got a real Oz rock background but he's also um, I say that but then he's also got jazz background um, so him and Nick had some um, connections as well mm-hmm. through the um, through their jazz backgrounds and Alan actually used to play trumpet as well oh okay so we'd love to get him on that horn again yeah, sometime. it'd be great. If we can yeah. get him to work out his lips a bit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> get, get it going again. In a productive way. Yeah. Okay. And, of course, you've mentioned Gilly, Gilly Gone, but you haven't actually said what he does with the band, so... Well, nobody's actually sure what, what <laughs> Gilly does, really. But he's just the X Factor, isn't he? He's, and everybody loves him. Yeah, yeah. They do. He's very popular. Yeah, yes. he's very yeah. popular. Everyone adores him. Yes. Um, no, and Gilly can actually land a one. And, and musically, the, the famous story about Gilly is when we went on Peter Gers and, um, and the sound engineer, for whatever reason, didn't realise how much percussion cuts through on recordings and, the, and Gilly's percussion was like the loudest thing in the whole band. <laughs> and, um, but he was nailing the one. And so we were all... And we had a really good show and, and it was a great performance and we were all really happy with it. It's just we were all pissing ourselves laughing about this shaker that was right up the front. <laughs> and, um, and and we were very proud of Gilly's uh, ability to land the one, that, uh, which was great. Um, but, yeah, no, Gilly's a young jury man and uh, he's born in Raukin community. Um, him and his sister Barb live up near you, um, Salisbury Way, and um, they, um, they've got Ngurundjeri Nation over their television set and... They're, they're very proud of their culture and their heritage. Um, yeah, and no, a lovely mob, all that, all Gilly's mob. And um, just uh, and everyone in his family um, know how important the Bones are yep. for Gilly. Mm-hmm. So I think, like, we all um, value the Bones through Gilly in that way, like, vicariously. We sort of realise, you know, when we get blase about things, we just remember, you know, hey, you know, this actually means something. Mm. Uh, Gilly's, um, yeah, and as I say, he gets lots of hugs and people want his autograph and all sorts of, all sorts of things. He makes people happy. He does, yeah. 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 It's great. So who actually um, came up with the name Holler and the Bones? I, I was teaching one-on-one at the time and I was trying out various, um, trying out various uh, names on my student at the time and, and, I, and we were just laughing constantly because I was, and I was trying to take it seriously but we had all sorts of silly versions. Um, but after various um, efforts with my silly versions failed to um, gain any traction with the band, um, Bones 
was at first, because we had the trombone at the time, it was at first um, a um, double meaning because, um, you know, we also had, even back then, we had, you know, references to um, Didge as well, but in the trombone. Um, but it's also the ancestors, and that's, and that's really fundamentally what holler and the bones means because holler comes from the field hollers mm-hmm. and um, the shout. It's, and so it's a shout from the earth. A lot of my favourite singers are earth singers. Mm-hmm. It's earth energy. It's a shout from the ground. It's a shout from their ancestors, the bones and the ground. Excellent. Thank you. Okay, so your music is all uh, original Aussie blues. Who wrote? Who writes most of the, the lyrics for the songs? Well, I write all the lyrics um, apart from... Uh, references to other bands we do some homage some tributes but um, the lyrics are fundamentally mine Mm -hmm. and there's another small exception um, again that we're taking to Memphis which is um, that I've asked Neil Murray from the Rumpy Band uh, for permission to use lyrics from his song Clever Man Mm -hmm. which he has very kindly granted a limited uh, consent for live, uh, live performances in America mm-hmm. while we're there, which I'm very excited about because I love that song. Um, but otherwise, you know, even though I write the lyrics, um, quite a few of our songs are records of uh, collective experiences. So, um, you know, while I do the word crafting, they're shared experiences um, with the band. So, in a way, I feel like everyone contributes to the lyrics too because they're kind of characters in it. So they're shared stories. Well, I sing a lot about Andy. I'm always saying Andy's name in song, song lyrics. <laughs> and, um, yeah. And a lot, of, a lot of, you know, I've got pictures of my family here and, you know, saying again, you know, fundamentally, you know, my story, to tell my story is to tell my family story. Mm. And, um, and there's a lot of stuff about my family. Um, you know, and and about the country because um, the landscape. Because we in the bones, we love the outback. We, you know, to a man in the band, we love we love this country, and we love um, travelling mm-hmm. and being out there in the country. And um, so, the songs are about travelling. The songs are about the places and the people of Australia, and. Um, you know, I talk about uh, the Darling River before, but the Murray River, we have a new song which is not on our album yet. It will be on our next album. Um, it's, um, it's called The Banks of the Murray. And I realised that, you know, my family is joined by the Murray River. Mm-hmm. Um, and that my... It says from the snow up in the mountains. And my mother lives up in the mountains of New South Wales. Um, and... It's, the Murray actually comes from the, like the Victorian side mm. of that, and she's more like the Murrumbidgee side, but it flows into the Murray, obviously. Um, and um, and my family, my young family's down here in Adelaide, near the mouth of the Murray. Mm-hmm. So I feel like my family is connected through the river. Thank you. 